Amongst the many shifts in our world, there is a conversation that I've been wanting to have, a conversation diving into what it means to experience, to recognise and to respond to grief and loss, something that many of us have been experiencing lately. I'm Ali Hill and welcome to Standout Life, a podcast dedicated to living boldly amongst the busyness, the uncertainty and even when we lose things, even if that loss is just the loss of normality. All too often we associate grief and loss with finality, the end of something and yet what so many have been experiencing now, have been experiencing in the last few months and potentially will experience in the months to come is both the reality and the anticipation of loss and the grief that comes with that. So in order to walk through this conversation with me, I invited clinical psychologist Dr Mel Tiatmu. Mel is a lead clinician and educator at Maya, a private psychology practice based in Burley on the Gold Coast. She uses the Maya method which supports clients and communities to recalibrate their bodies, reintegrate their minds and reignite their hearts. So I had to talk to her. Mel completed her PhD in Indigenous psychology from a Maori perspective and shares cultural insights into how her Maori ancestry faces grief and loss, something that actually all of us can learn from. Mel shows up in her life as a researcher, therapist, teacher, mother, wife, celebrant, and what she calls a girfer, a girl surfer, amongst many, many other things. There are many threads throughout this conversation that will be relevant for you no matter what change you might be facing. Mel reminds us to come back to ourselves, to come back to our bodies, to recognise the permission that whatever we are facing, whatever you might be feeling, that it is okay. And the importance of, in that moment, when you recognise that, of asking for what you need. This is a heartfelt dive into grief and loss with the beautiful and insightful Dr Mel Tiatman. Mel, welcome to the studio. Thank you. It's such a delight. Uh, this is actually for the first time in a long time where I'm actually sitting down with someone, uh, you know, 1.5 metres away, but um, this is my preferred mode of podcasting, so welcome. Thank you. It's really lovely to be here. So your background is you're a psychologist uh, and uh, obviously people listening will know that I'm a psychologist as well and so I was actually quite interested in going, what's the collective noun for psychologist. I don't know if you've ever looked it up, but I did because okay. I was interested. I'm like, really? Is there one? Yes. According to collectivenouns.biz, uh, it is a complex, which I don't know if that's appropriate or not. But I think sitting- it's absolutely appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> Very complex. <laughs> yeah. The conversations that go around the table amongst my peers, I would meet criteria for complex I'd say a beautiful kind of complex beautiful an important complex it was funny actually sitting right below psychologists was public speakers and the collective noun for them is a twaddle so (laughs) I'll take complex uh, any day of the week (laughs) I would love to start by asking you what drew you to psychology I'm I've had this reflection before because at university one of my roles was to support um, marginalised communities to find pathways into the university. So we'd visit remote communities and try and inspire young people to find a pathway to university. And I don't think I was drawn to it. I think I was pulled to it. Um, In terms of drawn, I feel like there's some sort of more active process within me that 
made me step towards it. But I actually do think there were many serendipitous moments in my life that led to finally choosing that. I wasn't a young person who thought I want to be a psychologist. Um, And it started from living on the Gold Coast and being pretty disenfranchised myself as a youth. I just finished year 12. I um, didn't really have a huge amount. I was working at a ice cream shop and I did have a lot of potential academically but I hadn't really planned anything out and my auntie asked me to um, come over to New Zealand and work for her and that was my beginning of reconnecting to my family in New Zealand and also my family in New Zealand uh, supported me to find a pathway to university and then once I got there uh, I thought a Bachelor of Arts was that you had to be artistic that was that was I I knew barely anything about university. I didn't have role models that went to university growing up. So I ended up doing a Bachelor of Science um, and my psychology papers really inspired me. But it was my contact with Māori students within my department and this drive to want to change the well-being of our community that pulled me in that direction. Yeah. And and what are the things that you... Um, now kind of enjoy navigating working in this area of psychology? Um, There's lots of evolutions I think that you go through. You evolve as a a psychologist. So I've been practising now for close to 14 years clinically and I like the pocket that I've found. I can't work in large organisations, health departments that are continuing to use heavily medical model-based ways of healing people. I've worked in inpatient units that to me were in a lot of ways, I felt like I was part of a system that I didn't identify with and that was actually causing damage. And so I, I went through my own trauma as a young psychologist working out where I fit. Um, so now I run my own practice and it's based heavily on the values that resonate for me and why I want to support the people that I work with. So those values around reclaiming language, they're around activism, they're around really deeply looking at our beliefs about ourselves and where we got them from and how to reshape them. And I wasn't able to do that as much within the larger organisations that I worked for when I was training. And in my first um, my, the first part of my practice when I was a younger psychologist. I'm always fascinated by sometimes those experiences are the things that give us the, um, the grunt, the extra uh, sense of importance uh, around the things that really matter mm. now. Now, I, um, I do have a disclaimer. I, I, when I approached you and said, look, I'd love to interview you, usually I'm quite open to where conversations go, um, but I have quite a strong intention by wanting to sit down with you. And that is I wanted to navigate a conversation about grief and loss, mm. uh, particularly at the moment through what's happening in our world globally, what's happening here in Australia for individuals, for organisations, for families, as we face uh, uncertain times, COVID-19, bushfires at the start of the year here in Australia, Mm. um, 
even in the past week, conversations around race and, and privilege, I think there's a huge amount of uh, navigating emotions and uh, the ups and downs of that. And, and often what sits behind that is, is grief and loss. And, and collectively, as, an, as, a, as a culture, as a community, we don't have a strong language around that. Um, what do you see and where have you seen the role of grief and loss through, I guess, some of the conversations you've been having with people and what you're seeing uh, through particularly this COVID-19 experience? In terms of where I've seen it, it's almost everywhere. Um, it's in, yeah, most people's stories have an element of grief and loss and it's because there's been this acute adjustment to change and it, it feels like on a number of levels for many people. Um, it's not only in the workplace, it's not only in their families, it can be, you know, it's societal at the moment, it can be cultural, it's intergenerational, like what's happening at the moment is a major historical event, um, not only the COVID-19 uh, experience of social isolation and trying to eradicate or get on top of this virus, but also the emergence of the conversation around privilege and marginalisation. So I'd say it's, I mean, grief and loss, it's not just because of now that it's everywhere anyway. It's, it's a very natural part of the tapestry of life. It, everything changes from the sun rising to falling to the seasons to our own life cycles. Everything has a rhythm, a beginning and an end or at least cycles of change that I think we as humans aren't that great at remembering we're part of that tapestry and <laughs> we try and step outside of it and, and keep things the same. Uh, but it's it's kind of pushing against a force of nature to some extent. Yeah, it's almost this hope that if I do this and I do this and I do this, then then you know it'll always stay the same, or you know I'll be able to protect against uh, loss. I you know one of the things I've been seeing and the conversations I've been having, and even using the word kind of grief, um, can seem strange because we we often associate grief with finality, mm. the end of a life the end of a job, the end of a business. Mm. And yet, uh, you know, there can, you know, for some people it's it's more in this kind of holding pattern. Mm. Where does grief play even if things aren't finished yet? Uh, what role does that, do you kind of see in those conversations where, um, you know, how can we recognise grief even before things uh, finish in our, in our world? Uh, yeah, grief isn't something that just occurs after something finishes is, is what you're talking about and that's absolutely the case. I mean, if you go, if I go back to conversations with clients, they're often grieving before something finishes. You know, um, look at relationships, you know, I've, I've got clients that have had breakdowns of marriages and they were grieving for two years before the marriage ended. Um, or, you know, if someone's in a crappy job that they're not happy with, 
and they want it to end or it's going to end at some point, it's they'll grieve for quite a long time before it happens. Um, and you're talking about that waiting place, unknown place that we all seem to be in collectively. Um, there aren't many predictions of outcome. And that discomfort, I, I think in some ways when you talk about bereavement, we all know that people grieve with bereavement. It's pretty socially accepted but we don't usually use that term, like you say, grief around change or around this waiting place feeling that we get. Um, yeah, so I think that absolutely it's there. It's just about developing a language and an understanding of what it is and how do you talk about it, how do you give yourself permission to look at it with curiosity or compassion and understand more about yourself through it. What does grief look like? Um, it's really different for different people. So I ask clients that directly. Um, in terms of when someone's experiencing grief, I will ask them, where does that sit on your body? You know, when you have a loss moment, a grieving moment, what does it what does it feel like on your physical being? So they might say, it sits on my chest. And then I'll say, what colour is it? And they'll say, it's so many times people say black, but they might choose another colour. What does it feel like? What's the actual physical experience of it? They might say heavy or spiky or light. Um, so in terms of the physical, symbolic or metaphorical experience of it, it, it can sit on people. And so I often help clients develop a language so that when they're in their day-to-day -day life, they might be able to go, oh, that black, spiky, heavy feeling just popped up on my chest again. And then they have that way of turning towards themselves and noticing symbolically that this thing is sitting on me. Um, what it looks like, the kind of model that I use to explain grief or that I see in clients, I don't place this model on them. I actually, through people's stories, hear them experiencing in their lived experience this kind of grief. It's called the dual process model uh, by Stroeve and Schutt. They developed it in the 90s. And that model of grief is a dual process. So if you picture two circles a little way apart from each other, one circle is loss and the other circle is rebuilding or reorienting. And so the very nature of grief is an oscillation between the two. Natural, healthy, normal grief is supposed to oscillate. So you go through rebuilding. You might be in rebuilding all morning. You're getting shit done. You're able to put one foot in front of the other. You're able to get some stuff over the line. And then something happens and it's usually a trigger. Could be a conversation, could be something you see on TV, it could be anything, a news item, and then you will shift into that loss space. So you'll oscillate from rebuilding to loss. And then in that loss space, anything and everything is possible. Guilt, shame, anger, numbing, regret, 
sadness, you know, all of the potential emotions associated with loss exist there. And when people go to that lost place, that's where they experience the images in their mind, the memories, the worries about the future, the thoughts about the past, the wishing they had have made certain choices or thinking deeply about what they're connected to and if they don't have a meaningful connection to it anymore, they can feel a sense of loss. So that dual process, a healthy, natural, normal grieving process, is oscillating between the two. Yeah, and don't make people just wish we could just do the rebuilding and like I'll do do five minutes back yes. in the loss. <laughs> yes, <laughs> and uh, and then I'll go back to the rebuilding because that's what you know. Yeah. I don't know whether it's uh, societal or just pressure we put on ourselves that that that's what it should be. It's almost a, um, well, it's a discomfort in sitting in the discomfort in a lot of ways. It's, it's almost like a, not wanting to go there. But what you're describing is actually that's normal and in fact healthy healthy and required. You need to rebuild. You need a break from the loss because the loss is too heavy. It's a massive amount of energy for your body to feel, for you to feel emotionally, if you believe in it to feel spiritually. Um, but the... The rebuilding, you can't stay in that place constantly. What we do know is that it's much more socially acceptable. So when people are in that rebuilding phase, the language they hear around them is, oh, you're so strong, you're doing so well. Yeah. So that then reinforces them to think I have to stay in this place because that means I'm being strong. I'm doing grief well. Yeah. Like it's almost I'm ticking that off. Yeah. What we do know as well is we have different kinds of grievers. So instrumental grievers will go straight to rebuilding and that's not wrong. That's just their natural tendency. It's like a personality type. So they'll be the people just head down, bum up, getting shit done, making sure everyone's on on the right page, whether it's in a family that's bereaved, whether it's in an organisation that's gone through a massive change. They're the real doers and rebuilders. They're very good at that. They're not great at touching the loss. Yeah. And they have to touch the loss because it's part of the natural, normal, healthy grief process. If you stay in rebuilding and you don't explore the language and experience of loss, you get this pent-up build-up of emotion. And that build-up often comes out in unhealthy ways. Um, I often use the analogy with clients who are rebuilders or instrumental grievers that in New Zealand there's a town called Aotearoa and it's thermally active underneath. And initially in the uh, initial establishment of the town, they were building on top of such active thermal area that backyards and the middle of the street would blow up because the pressure would just be so intense it would randomly blow up. And so part of the engineering, I guess thermo engineers or something like that, was to have concentric areas around the town that are man-made geysers and they time the release of pressure so that random backyards and streets and places don't blow up. And it's created space, created space for that release, created to actually, it's part of the environment that we need. So instrumental grievers need that space. Then you've got intuitive grievers They're pretty good at sitting in the loss. They want to talk about it. They're very emotional usually about it. 
absolutely okay, natural, normal and healthy. If you stay in the loss constantly, it's too much energy and too heavy and it can cause things like depression and not really getting back into a functional rhythm in life. Um, So oscillating between the two is healthy. And so sometimes I'll have clients come in and if they're intuitive grievers, I might not create huge amounts of space for them to express their loss if they've already got other places to to share it. I will absolutely create a safe space for them to share with me, but I might be thinking therapeutically of supporting them to rebuild in a soft, gentle way. But if someone comes in and they're a rebuilder then or an instrumental griever, then I will create more space for them to develop a language around loss. Yeah. I'd love to jump in around that language around loss. And I think um, – and partly why I was really interested in this conversation is because I don't think we have really good examples and role models mm. um, in, in, a, in Australia – kind of white culture, I don't think we do uh, grief particularly well and particularly when we're navigating the loss in amongst unknown. Um, at the moment with COVID-19, the, the kinds of things are um, just lof- loss of normality, mm. uh, loss of connections with work colleagues that I saw every single day and now I'm, I'm doing it via Zoom or some other kind of platform Um yeah, it's it's actually absolutely loss of job, loss of finances, uh, loss of certainty, loss of that travel plan that I you know the family holiday overseas that we've been planning for months and months and months. The impact on weddings and funerals and those kinds of things are are having a significant impact. Um, and you described before, I love that sense of getting back into your body and and getting that kind of picture of it. Language is so important. How would you kind of help someone who might be listening to start to describe or I guess tap into the language of maybe what they're feeling? Yeah. So language is so important and I often just to normalise clients and not not make them feel deficit-based because they haven't used the language of loss or, or I never really knew how to grieve. I just, I just say things like, did you do the grief and loss subject at school? You know, and they'll be like, no. You know, and, and did you see a lot of grief and loss going up? Interestingly, there are some people that just have a huge amount of loss in their lives and then some people who don't seem to have much or might not have had much experience with it. Um, so quite often it's like, you know, if I said to you, do you know how to speak Chinese fluently? And you said, no. it's nothing wrong with you. It's just that you weren't exposed to the language. You didn't have an opportunity to sit in that space and practice the language. Mm. It's not a a deficit in me. No, yeah. So it's about learning and leaning in and starting to practice language that might feel pretty foreign at first, like how if we were practicing Chinese or a new language – it, we would be thinking in English and then really in a jiggity way wrapping words around a sentence that feels odd because we're not used to saying things like that. And it's the same with grief. I often find clients sit very uncomfortably at first. And I'm like, wait, because I try and frog leap a feeling. They'll say something really profound in their story and then they'll frog leap the feeling and I'll go, hold on, hold on. I, 
just saw something happen there. What was that? What was that feeling? And then they look at me like with death at our eyes. Like, Don't fuck you, you dare make me go there. Don't dig into that. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I, I, I asked for permission. I need permission to stop there for them because it, it's okay for them not to stop. But I say, is it okay? Um, and I do remind them of safety. I, this is a safe space for you to share that. And so when they stop, quite often it's something to me that's simple and it's not to judge that it's not simple for them, but it's, it's actually saying what a feeling is. So I'll often bring up this feelings wheel in my sessions and put it in front of them and say, point to the feeling that you're feeling right now. And then they'll point to it. Um, and then I'll, they'll say, okay, so I am feeling angry. I'm feeling bereft. I'm feeling lost I'm feeling lonely whatever is happening for them and I do my very first thing that I go to more often than not with clients because it helps them have more intimate contact with what they're going through is I ask them where is it sitting on their body yeah and what does that do because I think um and I've seen and I've experienced it kind of personally we we get so disconnected it feels such a head game uh, and it's almost this question that we can asking and people might even be listening and, and thinking, yeah, but what do I do? What do I do? I don't want to sit. I don't want to – I'm sure I can find a word. Um, and I want to come back to that because I think that's profound as well. I agree. We don't often actually find the emotion word. We just describe what's happening and we, we wait for other people to assume what we're feeling. Yeah. Um, but that oh, – I lost my train of thought. Where was I going with that? Uh, yeah, I think, I mean, yeah, well, let's go down that rabbit warren yeah. of language then yeah. because we don't have the emotion words. We just say, well, you know, I've lost my job. Mm. But I don't know what that emotion means to you. For someone that might be real excitement, it might be opportunity, it might be relief because you got rid of that asshole of a boss <laughs> or it might be absolute devastation. So finding the yeah. the emotion words um, is is really key. Absolutely. I mean, it it doesn't have to be, and I know that's not what you're suggesting, but it doesn't have to be just relief and excitement or sadness and loss. According to the dual process model, it's both. When I'm in rebuild, I feel that excitement and that fresh perspective of a new day and and or I'm okay with what I'm going through, even if it's painful. I am able to show up today. Um, but if it's a loss moment, then those other patterns can creep in. I don't know if I can do this. I feel so lost. I feel so lonely. I feel so confused. I feel so scared. I just don't know how to make that next step. So we don't – it's often both end and – the language is for people. So clients now will come into me and go, oh, I had a really good rebuilding week this week or I had like four days of loss this week. And when they're in loss, it's what do I need? Not how do I push myself to rebuild? That will happen. It's when I'm in a space of loss, what do I need? And I often say to clients, what you need is permission, safety, language and sometimes guidance because in a deep dark loss moment 
uh, guidance can be really useful. That's so powerful because I think, yeah, again, a lot of people will go to what do I do? Mm. But that question of what do I need uh, gives that permission that it's okay. Mm. I don't have to get out of it. Mm, Just acknowledge it. uh, But putting a language to what do I need right now and that might be a bath, it might be a laugh, it might be a cry, it might be a something else but that invitation to the question um guilt is something that can come up a lot in in our experiences as well and even as you were describing it's both it's it's both this relief and sadness or relief and frustration or relief and disappointment um or whatever that blend or mix is and we can almost feel guilty about the fact that i feel relieved um, yeah. I'm almost noticing even, uh, you know, during lockdown there were people kind of saying, I'm really enjoying this. Am I allowed to say that even though my hours have reduced and, you know, it's hard homeschooling the kids but I'm also really loving this. Uh, that guilt almost has an extra overlay. What can people do if guilt shows up? <laughs> so, again, I don't try and change that guilt or say, you know, I, I don't argue with the guilt and say, Go away. <laughs> yeah, or give this positive reframe of it. I just say, where does it sit on your body? What colour is it? What's the texture of it? What does it feel like when it's sitting there? And then the next step after that is use your breath and breathe deeply into that place in your body. Don't try and change that guilt. Don't try and become more positive. Don't try and, you know, through guilt, look at the situation and backtrack over what it is you could have done or should be doing just sit with that feeling use your breath create some space around the feeling a deep compassionate accepting space that a natural feeling of grief is sitting on my body right now it's not wrong it's not unhealthy it's unhealthy if I make decisions through guilt it's unhealthy if I project my guilt onto the people that I love or care for but to have it sit on your body isn't unhealthy. It's a very natural, normal part of grief. That's yeah. where I was going to go before. I mean, we're so disconnected from our body to actually have a think about where does it feel, where does it sit, what does it look like, what does it, what's mm-hmm. its shape, what's its colour. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think it's in acknowledgement and feeling that that it actually that's where the, the freedom is and that it can dissipate. Um, it's that deep acceptance of your current state in that moment of discomfort or pain. So you turn towards yourself and you say, oh, this is, you know, the guilt is sitting on me right now and I feel heavy or I feel sad or whatever is going on. Once you create that space and you allow yourself to have that feeling, you breathe around it. You don't breathe to change it. You can just breathe some space around it because as soon as you breathe space around it, you are not it. Does that make sense? Like, it, sometimes people identify with their emotions so much. It's like they're this walking bubble of guilt. So if you look upon your body and you breathe some space around it, you're this, this other person who is experiencing guilt. You are not the embodiment of guilt. I'm having a moment or, I'm, yeah, I'm experiencing this. Yeah. It's it called diffusion. It's a sense of separating yourself enough so that you can look upon it instead of looking from within it. So when you look upon it, you can then compassionately 
ask questions about it. Like, where did I get this guilt from? What is this guilt saying to me? And then would I say this to anybody else? <laughs> you know, um, I have clients so many times when they say things to me. A, a client was having a grief moment just yesterday um, about the trauma that they've been through so, so, so many years ago. And they said, oh, I just, I'm so sorry for dumping this on you. I, I, I should be over this by now. I've just used up half of our session talking about this. And I said, oh, that was me. Like, you're in therapy for one. This is what you're supposed to do is talk <laughs> about this stuff. Um, but to imagine if I said that to you. Imagine if I said to you, after you just shared in such a brave and intimate way your story, imagine if I said to you, oh, come on. You should be over that by now. That happened so many years ago. So why are you holding on to it? And you just took up a good chunk of my time. Thank you. And they laughed. They said, oh, my God, I, I would never say that. I w- I w- and it just felt so weird for you to t- talk to me to like that. To hear those words back at you again. Yeah. Uh, so really being um, inquisitive and curious about the stories that come with those emotions. I love that sense too, like grief has got a clock. It should be done in three years or five years or ten years or whatever it is. And yet uh, it doesn't. It doesn't operate that way. No, grief is never treated. So we might treat depression, we might treat anxiety, but grief isn't an abnormal, unhealthy pain. It's a very normal, healthy pain, like labour pain. If you're going through labour, you have an intense pain. Like I'm just thinking about my own memory of labour. I remember there was a moment during my labour where I thought I'm actually going to break in half. Like I, I remember having to go past that mound in my head of surrender to this pain. But I knew that the pain was healthy. I knew my body was doing what it needed to do to birth this child. And it's the same with grieving. If I had that kind of pain and I wasn't giving birth, it would be weird. Yes. It would be unhealthy. Something's going on. Something's yeah. wrong. It's a trigger. It's a, it's a pay attention to this. Yeah. And this, it's the same with grief. So we don't treat grief as psychologists. We just create space for it and language and permission and safety and guidance. Those are the only things. So when I'm supervising students, that's, those are the four things I go to. Safety, guidance, permission and language support them in that way and people will find their own way through their that wilderness they don't need to be told every little thing on how to get through it because they'll have their own unique way of guiding themselves through it love that safety safety guidance permission and language Mm. what are the things that might get in the way of safety in particular or that maybe block that experience where people might kind of push down or you know, I, I, it's, it's not safe to show this. It's not, um, uh, you know, I don't, I don't want to. Whatever, what, what might be some of the things to be mindful of? Well, sometimes suppression of grief is absolutely adaptive, because it's not safe. Uh, you know, some clients say, I, I, you know, for years that they had pushed a grief down, and and I often just validate that and say, yeah, because. If you had have shown that, you wouldn't have had the safety to fully experience those emotions and all the guidance to know how to get through it. So you did what you had to do. Um, so the, the suppression of grief 
isn't always pathological. Most of the time it's not. It's quite often adaptive um, and protective. The issue is that when they carry that in that adaptive response, which was once adaptive, into new places where they are actually safe because their kind of hypervigilance to the environment is still telling them to keep it down when in actual fact they are in a safe relationship or a safe therapeutic environment or um, with a safe friend. So it's about remembering that that suppression was once adaptive, absolutely okay, likely helped you get through at that time but is no longer adaptive. It's severing your ability to connect and to be supported and to express how you feel and share your story. Yeah, And to go through that uh, kind of loss and, and regrowth, um, oscillation, yeah. which I really love. One of the things I do notice as well is comparisons. Mm. So uh, it's almost like a downplay in what I've lost or how I'm feeling because I'm, it's not as bad as... Oh, yeah, people do that all the time. Yeah. What do we do with that? Just don't compare. (laughs) I mean, that's easier said than done. But everyone's intimate experience of their lives is their intimate experience of their lives. Like, there there is no kind of scale of grief and loss and who's permitted to grieve certain things and who's not. Um, And there's no well where, you know, if, if someone's grieving more than I am, then I'll take their – like if I did too, I'll take that away. It's not like it's uh, it's finite. In fact, there's enough. <laughs> you know, no. It's uh, that comparison. And, um, yeah, I think – I mean, one of the, when you talk about kind of permission and, and calling it and recognising, I think what comparison does is almost cut that off. Yeah. It, uh, it almost tells you and your body, don't, don't feel this. Yeah, it's not, it's not bad enough. It's not heavy enough. Look at what all of these other people have gone through. So – you now don't have permission. And that, again, is an internal voice that you could sit with, right? So people could turn towards their body and go, where am I feeling this block? Where am I feeling this apprehension to share my story because it's not something enough? Um, and then breathe around it and also deeply dig into it and go, what story am I telling myself right now that's stopping me from being able to express how I'm feeling? You know, Is it the parent who says don't hang out your dirty laundry or is it you know being someone like me a psychologist who sees people suffering quite a lot and then will not allow my own suffering because I will compare it to what I've witnessed or what I've heard or what I've seen. We um, a lot of people listening will know or at least have heard of um, some of Kubler-Ross's kind of stages of grief um, and she was very open in her kind of research saying these aren't prescriptive, they're certainly not linear. You don't go through one and have two weeks there and then yeah. go to bargaining and then go to denial or whatever they are. Um, they, it's, it's really just their descriptions of uh, phases or expressions that people might feel. And, and they are like denial, bargaining. One of those is anger. Um, and and often we don't associate grief. We may not put the language that this is grief uh, when we're in that phase of 
of anger in at the moment I guess through that uncertainty the types of anger that uh, that people might be feeling is why is this happening why is this happening to me um, we shouldn't have to go through this uh, I mean there's even kind of jokingly memes around is 2020 over yet those kind of which is you know just other forms of frustration on that scale yeah. of, of anger um, and yet I think it's really important to recognize the role that anger plays in grief uh, I was reading something the other day that was only you know was actually talking about the en- there's energy in anger yeah. that can be incredibly useful to to harness and to to recognize um, in terms of the way that we we see anger um, in that grief process, uh, particularly for women. So I'm going to talk yeah. to women more so that permission that it's okay. What might that look like and what encouragement uh, would you have if that's that's part of the expression of grief? Yeah, I, I think that it's probably one of the least or the most, sorry, the least permissible emotion it's not around socially grief. acceptable like no. right like I don't yeah. mind the tissues I can come yeah. and give you a cup of soup and that's what we think grief looks like right is sadness or that heaviness um, but anger is absolutely a huge part of it and especially for women having safety and permission to express and explore anger and to find a language around it you know how do I speak of anger and I'll often say to clients, how did you see women in your life speaking of anger? And they'll be like, they didn't. Or they did and in really unhealthy ways. And I don't ever want to be like that. So I don't want to be an angry person because the person I saw being angry did it in a horrible way. Aggressive or abusive. So again, I say to clients in that kind of joking but very, very deeply serious way, did you ever do the subject at school on anger? Did you learn about it? Did you understand how it sits on your body? Did you learn the language of it? Did you find out how it can play out in your life? Not in a negative way, but just how does it look? How does it feel? What does it look like? So then we just go down that path of exploring it. And, you know, I have some clients who just need permission to have a good old, you know, I just say, let it out. And they'll just have a stream for about, 15 minutes of everything they're angry about. It's very much it, um, almost like that suppression of, yeah, there's a certain way you can be angry, there's a certain time period, but then that's it. Uh, and so I think that ability to yeah. to have permission, and I love that sense of, you know, did you do the course? Yeah. It's almost like, in fact, it was the opposite. You were disencouraged to do yeah. any course on it. Uh, Absolutely. Most women have been taught that anger is negative. Um, Men have a bit more permission to express it, but again, their role modelling around how it's expressed isn't healthy either, most of the time, if we look on a societal or cultural level. So rewriting those scripts that we have, these deep unconscious beliefs and scripts that we run by that we're not even conscious of it's like when you drive your car do you really think about driving your car not much anymore but if you go to the states and you're on the other side of the car and you're using the gears in a different way and you're trying to drive on the other side of the road you get into a whole other level of consciousness to do what you're doing 
because you're experiencing new learning and that's what we need to do around things like anger, particularly anger when it comes to grief. In a really practical level, what uh, what could someone do if they're maybe, I don't know, in the middle of a work day and something just pisses them off? Um, And, you know, I've got a million other things I need to do and I want to be able to recognise this or do it now that, you know, I've got a bit of awareness around I shouldn't just put this down and get on with it and be a martyr. Practically, in that moment. So... In those moments, I usually go to Brene Brown's shitty first draft strategy because I use it personally and I get clients to use it. So write down everything that anger's saying. And I'm not saying that that's just shitty. It can be – but uh, when you're emotionally minded, there's massive swear words and you're like, fuck this, fuck that, or, you know, what, whatever. But you want to allow that some expression. So write it all down. Write it all down as though no one's going to, like, you know, everything yeah. that we don't have to vet or edit. Yeah, you know? let it out in an uncensored, permissible way. Um, then the next step from that anger is, from what Brene Brown says, is get curious about it. So what is this telling me about me? What is this telling me about the person or the thing or the organisation I'm angry at? What is this telling me about um, my learning or my beliefs? Is there anything more I need to know about the situation? There's lots of questions you can ask to find out more. Uh, And then the last step is, do you want to rewrite that? And I don't mean rewrite anger. Anger is just totally permissible. It's that sometimes we've got some pretty crappy drafts in our head around anger. And so then you can rewrite, you know, the rewrite might be, it is totally okay for me to feel this right now. And I'm going to turn towards myself and ask myself what I need in this moment. Yeah. And I almost am reminded to, um, you know, that comment where you said before around, you know, part of that being curious and what might you rewrite is the language we talk to ourselves about Mm -hmm. in that writing that, you know, I shouldn't even be thinking this and I need to be getting work and I've got to be on top of it and everyone else is on top of it. And where are those kind of mean languages that uh, actually we could edit or um, look at those differently? Mm. And again, coming back to that question of uh, what do I I need right now? How could um, people, I guess, also deal with regret that can come up. So regret often comes with with loss. Uh, in fact, the two can go hand in hand. In taking the current context uh, into play, it can be things like um, I should have saved more money, I should have applied for that other job, I should have put my hand up, I should have, um, as business owners, you know, I should have seen this coming, I should have risk managed this, like, you know, I regret um, now this, this and this. How do we... Um, navigate or you know, recognise probably more than navigate? How do we recognise regret and what can we do if that comes to play? Yeah. Um, oh, gosh, I'm so familiar with regret. I'm, I'm a very – I question my decisions a lot. That's something that I've had to work on in my life and um, my husband and my brother laugh at me about that quite a bit. It's, it's things like – just even simple things like I'll paddle out to surf and then I'll look over to the other peak and I'll go, I should have gone there. 
or <laughs> it's in serious. It just happens. In oh, it's like being at the supermarket, right? <laughs> yes. Like which line is like I've chosen this. Yes. Oh, I should have gone on that one. It's those I'm so typical of me. I'm always <laughs> choosing. Like, I'm the worst. <laughs> yes. um, so it's a familiar experience for me, and uh, then it can happen in really deep and and difficult and complex ways in people's lives. Uh, I've seen it around grief and loss with the last moment someone saw a loved one before they passed with an unexpected bereavement. Um, And that regret is so consuming that I feel tears well up in my eyes when I hear someone's story around that because it's it's a heavy feeling. So it can be in those light, you know, kick yourself in the butt ways, but then sometimes it can be pretty, pretty heavy. Because it's those moments, I mean, regret itself is the, the choice I could have made, mm. the the different way I could have acted and I didn't. Mm. Uh, it's kind of almost benchmark that we put on ourselves that can be incredibly heavy. Mm. What I often say to clients around deep regret is that they're looking back on their past self with the knowledge they have now and judging their past self based on that knowledge, but they didn't have that knowledge then. So we're using, it, it, it just, it's, if you look at it from an, it, it's just highly irrational. You know, if you had the knowledge you have now then, you likely would have made a different choice. Like it's guaranteed, but you don't, you didn't have that knowledge then. You just deeply didn't know. Oh, that's so powerful. If I, if I'd known with this was going to be the last moment, yeah, uh, but I didn't, yeah, and so I behaved that way, yeah, yeah. That's so, yeah, just such a great reflection and a recognition to, again, that it's okay, mm. it's okay to feel that and recognize it, but I did what I did with the knowledge and the information I had at the time, yeah, uh, rather than because this line looked better or this, <laughs> do you know what I mean, at the supermarket, this peak looked better or this, yeah. uh, you know, that, that conversation was like every other conversation I've ever had with that person yeah. and I didn't know. Absolutely. So I think that can lighten the load a little bit if people really take that into their heart, that compassion for their past self, understanding that their past self did the best of what they could with what they had. They didn't have the knowledge that they have now. Um, the other thing is that regret is natural, normal, healthy part of grief too. So we don't have to cognitively restructure it. We don't have to turn it into something positive or turn it into not having regret. We just make room for it. It's a natural, normal, painful, uncomfortable experience that comes with acute change, that comes with these unexpected left-hand turns that life takes. And if we recognise that it's just part of the tapestry of what we're experiencing and create some space for it, some permission, some safety, then it, it doesn't necessarily make it lighter, but we just hold it differently. Yep. Part of human nature is wanting to um, predict to be able to know, to navigate, to have a sense of certainty about tomorrow or my pathway forward. 
Um, and I think collectively at the moment, everything is up for grabs. I feel like every habit that we've ever had, everything we've ever done, uh, we're really getting cast to be able to go, is this what I want to carry forward? Is this what I want to uh, continue um, continue taking with me? But there, there is still a sense of uh, I'm not particularly comfortable not knowing. Uh, I want to know when... Um, we're sitting here in Queensland when the borders are going to open. When uh, will we be able to do domestic travel again? When will we be able to do international travel again? There's there's talk about being able to go back to New Zealand and I know you've got family and deep connections over there but that's not happening yet. Uh, just give me a date and I can sort that out. Yep. How, how do you personally deal with navigating uncertainty? I'm increasingly learning the language and the skill because I'd like to try and walk the talk. If I'm helping clients do this, then I have a crack at it myself. But to be honest, if there's something that I've had to work on in my life, it's anxiety and it's anxiety around uncertainty. Um, that came from a deep, difficult past for me. I've, I experienced a childhood and adolescence that was you know, my parents, are, I have compassion for them, but, you know, they had addiction issues and so life was pretty chaotic and life was uncertain. Uh, so my way of getting through that was to control as much as I could and it was adaptive at the time. I became... you got to do what you can. I got through it by grabbing the reins most of the time for my family at, at a young age and keeping that horse on course. And it probably worked. It probably served to have that sense of control and create some certainty yeah. in amongst the unknown. Yeah. So my adult self has had to relearn a lot of that and recognise my deep discomfort with uncertainty. Um, for people who are going through that uncertainty, I know I keep on going back to it and it's almost repetitive, but again... It's just sitting with it and noticing how it sits on your body. Like I, I, I can't state enough. So for me, uh, the uncertainty of going back to New Zealand, the uncertainty initially with the first ad adaptation around COVID-19 and what was happening for my practice and the people who work with me and for me wanting to know how things were going to be for them it was anxiety provoking and I did go into controlling as much as what I could to get through it. Um, but at the same time, I developed a daily practice of creating space for that uncertainty. In the mornings, I would sit with how that worry or discomfort was sitting on my body and being able to cre create enough space for it so that I could still be present enough in my day. Yeah. Practically, what were you doing? Like, what's part of that that uh, you know ritual? Is it is it writing? Is it just kind of carving out a set period of time? Is it uh, you know, in terms of yeah, on a really practical level, what might be someone might be something that someone might be able to do for their own sense of kind of worry or anxiety. So I think it's actually really unique for each individual and I like to try and tell clients that they won't find a book or a podcast or a, a you know, 
a program or an app that tells them what is best for them. Come on, Mel. <laughs> I just want the five <laughs> steps. Can't uh, you promise me that? No, I know. Sometimes so yoga so for some people is deeply uh, relaxing. Yes. But for other people, it's just anxiety and frustrating and, and annoying and then yep. they feel less than because they're supposed to be these yogis because it's supposed to help everyone but it's not helping me how am I failing and at this I'm too? wrong yeah, yeah. so I, I so get true. I get apprehensive to say this but my personal program that works for me and when I'm not doing it I notice it I'm not firing on all cylinders um is there's three levels that I work on myself around and I'll, I'll briefly share some of the rituals so that I because I could talk all day about this so the first one is my body and I know that I have to work with my body first because I'm I also am right into neuropsychology and I know that if I'm not calming my nervous system I'm more susceptible to the things that can creep up in my life unhealthy thinking habits and belief systems that I've done a lot of really good work on trying to rewrite but if I'm not looking after my nervous systems they all just come back again so I sleep well and I guard my sleep pretty heavily in terms of eight hours you know my kids know that good sleep is something that mum values Uh, and it's not but my son even had a couple of sick nights and Penny's like, I'm so sorry, you woke up in the middle of the night, I know how much you like your long sleep. And I said, oh, that's okay, honey. Like I know that, you know, you needed me in the night, but they know it's just a thing how that important. they understand. Yeah. yeah. I, I love having a morning ritual. It's a big part of what keeps me balanced, particularly through this COVID-19 period. So getting up pretty early before my family rise is preferable. Otherwise, you know, it's fine if my daughter's climbing all over my back while I'm doing what I'm doing, but it isn't as relaxing. <laughs> uh, so I do breath work in the morning. I, t- I do pranayamic breathing. Uh, so for people who are listening who don't know what that is, it's to calm your nervous system, you breathe out for twice as long as you breathe in. Yeah. To activate your nervous system, you breathe in for twice as long as you breathe out. So I'm usually, I don't need activation. Some people need activation. They're to const- get into the day, to get focused, to get clear. Yeah. yeah, their constitutions need a pickup, whereas my constitution needs a settle down. Most of the time I'm higher and I need to ground. I'm not lower and need to pick up. So that's how people need to deeply look at themselves. Because if someone's low and then they do kind of calming exercises it, it's okay it's not going to harm them but it, it might not be what they need so I have that pranayamic practice I'll usually do a bit of yoga and then I go totally woo woo so I grab cards and pull cards out and look at the symbol of the card and think about how that's going to impact upon my day and how it relates to how I'm feeling that's usually a part of my morning practice. Well, that, I mean that's just intentionality yeah. isn't it it's a tool for what's my intention yeah. for the day or what uh where does this kind of fit into that yeah. um and I, I absolutely take on board what you said I, I often say to people think of it like an experiment mm. and if you hear a good idea if you think that's going to fit into your your day your week then give it a go but if it's not then let it go yeah um and uh, and look for what fits more 
helping you? Well, I do say to clients that mindfulness across the board, I think, is needed. It's just the kind of mindfulness that suits people is different. Because mindfulness is a mansion with many rooms. It's not just sitting there and breathing deeply. I love that kind of mindfulness. That rocks my boat, but it might not rock others. Mindfulness can be just deeply attending to a task. It can be positively experiencing a beautiful moment with a loved one. Uh, the, The hardest part of mindfulness is radical acceptance, and that's what we've been talking about today, radically accepting pain and discomfort as a part of the tapestry of what is going on. Uh, so I often talk to people about mindfulness being so essential to our well-being these days that it should be like brushing your teeth or we've got to get to – I don't like using the word should. It, in, its, in our healthiest state, we will include it in our daily routine like we do brush our teeth. So I get burnt out people or people who are grieving and I say, I bet you no matter how dark and deep you are, you will still brush your teeth today. And they're like, yeah, of course. Like, I can't not brush my teeth for a few days. Like, what happens when you don't brush your teeth, even if you miss one morning or one evening? They feel furry. It feels uncomfortable. It feels gross. I need to brush my teeth. And I say, that's what I want mindfulness to be like for you. Mm-hmm. That if you don't do it that day, you feel furry. There's like a furriness to your mind, to your emotions. And until you practice it, you don't feel that sense of having completed something around your hygiene, your mental hygiene or your emotional hygiene. Yeah, It's just a, a muscle memory. It's something I do. Yeah, like, and we weren't born knowing how to brush our teeth. Like, mm. I still force my children to brush their teeth. If they, if they had their way, they would just run around furry teethed for weeks. Same. I, I constantly have this conversation every night. Go and brush your teeth. No. I'm like... It happens every night. It's happened every night for the last 12 years. (laughs) I have literally had my daughter in almost a headlock trying to brush her teeth. Like, it's that bad. Because I'm trying to get to the back ones. But at some point in their life, they internalise it and it becomes part of their daily practice because we have valued it so much for their upbringing that we get them to do it every day. Mm. Like, I'm, I'm not saying use force, but I would love it if we did... The same thing with mindfulness. mindfulness with children. Yeah. That we take that time out in our day. It's a headache having to get my kids to brush their teeth sometimes, but I do it because I know it's really important for their oral hygiene. Same thing with mindfulness. So if we can do that for ourselves, do that for our children, then that, that is that schooling around being able to touch things without feeling that sizzle hot plate experience that people feel because they haven't had the experience before. Yeah, so bringing mindfulness, whatever way or whatever practice, um, in like brushing your teeth, I love it. I mean, and and you're right, it doesn't have to be the um, the yogi sitting on top of a mountain or anything like that as well. It's the moments you can do while you're waiting at a red light. It's the, I mean, some of the most mindful moments I've had um, is picking up trail running. So being out in nature, out in the uh, wilderness where you have to pay attention to every step that you take because it's on a different piece of ground or there's a you know a root or a twig or a something or a rock that you need to uh, go through there there's nothing more present than than being in that space so um, whatever that might look like I'd be really interested to kind of hear for people 
We've touched on, I, I love that kind of radical acceptance of, of what is going on. My sense is that, um, that there is more kind of grief and loss to come in, in different ways and in different forms, uh, but almost going back to right at the very start, that's always been a part of our world. Like this is not uh, something new. Culturally, we have different ways of, of yeah. navigating, knowing, uh, recognising, and even the way that um, grief was acknowledged in our family, I think so informs the language and the permission that we have. I was only talking to my dad who's 73 um, probably about a year ago and he was saying when his grandfather passed away, um, he was about six or seven, deeply loved his grandfather, spent you know a lot of time with him uh, but wasn't invited to the funeral. In fact, no one talked about it. As a six-year-old, we don't expose you to that. And so, you know, I it was so interesting to go that was only a generation ago and I feel that's quite different um, for, for me and my experience and my generation and what might be different for my kids. I know growing up um, and certainly, you know, part of your background is, is a real connection to the Maori culture mm. in New Zealand. What, what is different? How do you see culturally uh, in, you know, navigating grief and loss? What's been your experience? Yeah, it's I, – I've been privileged – to have guidance and language and permission and safety around grief and seeing it and experiencing it intimately a number of times that I've, I'm okay with it. Uh, culturally, we have, with bereavement, it's called a tangi and tangi has two meanings. It's a funeral and it's also to cry. So I think even in the name, you have permission to experience emotion you know, funeral, I guess because we associate sadness with it, but it's the actual construction of the linguistic nature of the name that gives you permission initially. Mm. Uh, the difference, my grandmother, it was this cross-cultural experience for my grandmother. She grew up with Tangi. Her first language is still Māori. She lives on our ancestral land in a valley that our community and our iwi, our tribe, has deep connections to. So she's tangi a tangi to her. It's like she doesn't she doesn't talk about it in a cultural sense. That's just what it is. That's how you grieve people. And I'll tell you more about it soon. But when I took her down to Auckland one time for one of her brothers wanted uh, what we call a pakia funeral, which is a white funeral. Uh, and I took her to her brother's funeral and she was just wide-eyed at the whole thing. It was the first time she'd experienced, I think, or at least for a long time, but it, it looked like she was just like, wow, is this how they do it? And she said to me, this is like the McDonald's of funerals. <laughs> so <laughs> she felt like it was the fast food of how you grieve. Get your happy meal. <laughs> like people were doing everything for you and it happened really quickly and then they were in the ground and then we were finished and you had something to eat and then we were going home. She was like, wow. So that whole time she found that really intriguing. Um, so for a tangi for us, we usually have an open casket uh, and so we can see the two papuku, two papuku is the body. We believe that the wairua or the spirit of the two papuku is still with the person for at least three days afterwards. Um, we sleep with the two papuku for around three days, sometimes it's longer, and we take the two papuku back home. So wherever the two papuku is from, wherever our loved one is from, 
you take them back to their marae, which is your Fano boarding house, in very, very loose sense of the translation. So then we all go back. And when I say we all, I mean we all. Like there's a huge amount of people often that go to a tangi. And for days, people will travel from far and wide to come and pay their respects. And you sit and you experience grief and you hear grief and you talk about grief and you see the person who's passed and we wing the person who's passed so the the closest members of the family don't ever leave the person who's passed side they get breaks to eat and things like that but there's always this winging of the two papuku because they're being held until they're buried the the most deeply emotional part of a tangi for me is when you first get to the marae and one of the elders, the queer, is a, it's a female elder, is calling you onto the marae with a karanga. And a karanga is, it comes from another world. Um, it's a deep call that gets right deep down into yourself when you're going onto the marae. And through that deep call, you straight away are given permission and guidance and safety to feel what you're feeling. So most of the time when you hit the marae and that call starts, you'll see all the shoulders moving. Mm. (laughs) Because even, I don't know why, but talking about it makes me emotional. I mean, I do know why. I often say to people, of course you know why. It's an emotional thing that you're talking about. Uh, But to, to be guided through that grief... And to be watching those shoulders moving in front of you and having your own shoulders move and doing that as a collective mm. is deeply healing. There's something in um, like the word that's coming to mind for me as you're describing that is this resonance. Like it's almost this this vibration or this this deep seatedness that uh, that goes actually yeah where and almost that we're all in it together. Like well, you'll have your your own unique. Um, experience of what it means or the story around that but that we're all in it together and therefore the safe environment for whatever comes up it's it's total safety and being held people who i know who've never experienced tangi when they come to tangi have quite a profound learning about grief Uh, for days you hear stories of the person you're grieving you You laugh, you cry, anger is expressed, regret is expressed, all those things that Kubler-Ross described or the dual process model talks about, that all plays out in a space together. And on the very last night, a tokotoko, which is a a walking stick, is passed around the room and you usually stay up from sunset to sunrise that last night. And if you fall asleep, then the stick will poke you to wake you up. Um, when it's your turn because when you're given the stick you stand up and you you speak of your feelings of where you're at of how you're feeling of how you're feeling about the person who's passed Uh, you sing a song usually and you you, you're given that guidance Um, and then it doesn't finish after the tangi there's there's deep support for a long time after that experience but that experience itself 
you know, I've got friends who've written PhDs on that experience, colleagues who've written PhDs, and it's a deeply... Uh, I'm very privileged that I have access to that way of grieving and I've learned that way of grieving. The Yeah, I mean, when you talk about safety, permission, the normalising, the role modelling, um, the acceptance, mm. you know, even if you're angry and frustrated, there, yeah. there's a sense of we accept that too yeah. and we've got that too and this, is, this place is there as well. Yeah, my uncle's funeral, my grandmother got up and told my uncle off. Like she, it, was, it was like her last telling off of her son <laughs> um, and had a good go at him because she was angry that for her at the time she was talking about medication and people taking their medications. And I don't actually know what the story was, but for her she thought that he wasn't taking his heart medication. And so then she kind of went around the room and told everybody else off too and said look at you, look at you, look at you, start taking medication, stop ignoring the doctors, stop, you know. So, um, yeah, there's lots of different ways in which it's expressed and it's totally okay. It's such a gift, as you say, to kind of have that uh, exposure and, um, you know, part of, mm. of understanding and expression and permission. What can we do to increase that for ourselves? If we don't have a... Um, uh, MRI, uh, (laughs) uh, the social supports around us that kind of almost um, mean that you don't have to choose yourself, right? Like you don't have to decide because this is actually just, you know, what we're doing. Um, I guess that question to mind, you know, what what could we do outside of that? And probably what sits under that is how important is ritual? How important is taking a... um, a ritual uh, or, you know, a point in time to recognise that uh, loss. And and what we're talking about here is everything from uh, the loss of a person, loss of a job or the anticipated loss of um, just my yeah, normality or being able to move in the world or go to that restaurant or and it might seem weird that I'm talking about those at the same time but the 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 feeling and sensation in our body can be quite similar um so yeah through all of that my question is around rituals uh how important aren't they and uh where might someone start to think about in terms of where you know utilizing a a ritual uh navigating through grief and loss Rituals can be deeply healing, whether it's a family, an organisation. Uh, yeah, I mean, I know a lot of your audience are in businesses and those businesses have gone through acute change. Uh, what we know about the deepest part of acute change is that it does feel a little bit like somehow you've stepped on the outside of everything. So that husband who's just lost his wife, he's outside the hospital and the world continues to move but somehow he's no longer a part of it. Uh, The person who's just lost their job and they've been in their job for 20 years or two years, doesn't matter, they're walking back to their desk and walking outside of the workplace and all of a sudden they're no longer a part of that humming traffic, the the people laughing and having lunch. There's this on the outer kind of Mm -hmm. feeling. Oh, I resonate with that with so, so much. When my mother passed away, um, I remember for weeks afterwards going, why is the sky still blue? Yeah. 
I'm like, why is it? I, I don't get that grass is still green. Mm. It doesn't make sense. So, yeah, what you're describing, I, I get. It's a bizarre experience, isn't it, that everything still hums along, but you're no longer humming along with it. Mm. You're, you've literally stepped outside of it for a period of time. That's loss. Uh, in terms of ritual... It is deeply important and and the healing that can come from it. I would just say any ritual, because there's so many different kinds of rituals, right? If you think about a Hawaiian form of healing, they call it ha'aponopono, which is to make things right again. Uh, for us, we would hui, which is just getting everyone in a circle. Each person gets to talk and you express how you feel and you try to get to a resolution, but... Quite often what we need to remember is we need time to accommodate task. Too often in organisational structure, uh, what we do is we try and shape the task to fit the time. And it's just, it, it flips on its head within a Māori context. You, time just breathes as much as it needs to for that task to be completed and you don't pack it in to the time frame. So you can't have a deep healing ritual around grief in an hour <laughs> for an hour meeting. Okay, guys, we're going <laughs> to we're gonna can the, the team admin meeting this morning and we're going to have a grief, but make sure we finish at 10. Yes. Like yeah. It can't happen like that. It, it needs to breathe. It contracts and it expands. And, and again, that's our desire for certainty and say, like, you know, we're just going to pop it in a box. We're going to have tick that off and then you'll be fine and we'll get back to yeah. the work at hand. And people know if they're safe. I often say to people, if you don't feel safe, trust that. That gut feeling is actually, that's not you being irrational, that that gut feeling is, is could be correct. Don't ignore it. Dig into it and say, you know, is that is that why I'm not sharing in this space? So a family, an organisation, wherever we show up, you, you need, it needs to come deeply from a, a place of culture for it to feel safe. If it's, if it's a tick box, let's do this so we can get everyone moving on and become more productive, it's not going to work. And people won't feel safe enough to partake in it if that's the purpose. No, and we'll do it, and we'll do it at a very surface level. Yeah. But it doesn't actually allow. Yeah. So trusting in the breathing space of time. So allowing the task, but if it needs to extend, yeah. then allowing that if we need to come back and, and revisit if, it, if other things kind of bubble up. Yeah. And that, that's critical and key to do. In terms of creating or having a safe environment, again, there might be people – listening who are going, oh, you know, that sounds great, but um, but I don't. And I guess what's coming to mind for me um, and probably more your commentary rather than a question is just that taking the time or I guess even posing the question of where might that safe environment be or starting to explore that. Now, it could be through a, um, a therapeutic uh, space but also just – recognizing or reaching out to people around you 
Um, often we can be wishing or waiting or, you know, is there somewhere I can go and talk and, and waiting to be invited and yet we can we can craft the thing that we need and that probably comes back to your question before of like what do I need? Well, I need two or three people to, to go and talk this through yeah. um, and I'm always surprised and blown away that sometimes when you reach out, the very thing that you need, someone else also needs. Mm. Um, so finding ways to really craft uh, safe environments for yourself. Um, yeah. How important has that been for you? Like even as a as a you know therapist, as a psychologist, in in being able to kind of debrief or uh, craft out that that safe space. How have you kind of navigated? Um, you know, reaching out, asking for help. I guess. Yeah, that safety has to first start within yourself because you're not going to feel safe anywhere else if you're not giving yourself permission to feel how you're feeling. Like that client I was talking about and him saying, oh, I should be over this by now. If you have an internal dialogue that's talking like that to you. You're never going to go and ask someone, let's go and sit down. and You're not going to feel safe anywhere this. else. Yeah, of course, yeah. So you start very intimately with yourself and dig into why you don't feel safe with yourself. You know, to give yourself permission guidance, uh, language, you know, and with the guidance and language, yeah, finding people that you can talk to. I mean, we know that, that sense of vulnerability and connection that you get from sharing your story is profound in a therapeutic context, yes. If you're not feeling safe to in your family or in your organisation, then that's a concern. I don't think people should just stay in places like that if they don't feel safe. You know, sometimes it's it's very hard not to, but if I have a client who therapeutically has shared with me they feel deeply unsafe to vul- in, a, in a vulnerable way share what is really going on for them in a workplace or in their intimate play in their intimate relationships then it's not like I put on the agenda but it flags for me. I just think that's not cool. <laughs> you know, that's really unhealthy to be in places that you feel unsafe to be who you are. The organisation and the family, you know, what we do know about children is they won't go further honouring their grieving than their parents, usually. So they are deeply looking for guidance around that. And it's the same in organisations. Employees won't go further along grieving than their leaders. So if leaders think that they're doing a good thing by only rebuilding it might not be the case you know the guidance that you show your employees or the guidance that you show the people who are looking up to you is to show them that oscillation and to provide language and permission and safety around being able to oscillate and that that's natural normal and healthy the uh, the importance of sitting recognizing um feeling giving language to and having safety around all of the emotions that might be coming up at the moment and that may come up in the months to come in amongst the the uncertainty. I was only talking to someone the other day and they they were asking the question around, uh, you know, what are you going to carry forward post-COVID-19? And I actually went, I'm not sure there's a post for a while. Uh, I think, you know, there's, there's significant changes that will stick with us for a long, long period of time and so... Uh, more around that 
then that's that you know letting go of well I have to have it all sorted by then I have to you know um that that really it's just the now and what we're going through right now um I've appreciated so much of how you've shared your story uh I am going to wrap with the the question that I ask uh, all my guests Mm. obviously the name of the podcast is called standout life Uh, when you hear that term, what does it mean to you to live a standout life? For me, a standout life represents or it relates to the term legacy. And legacy often people say, oh, that's so heavy, you know, it's intergenerational, it's you've got to have this big world-changing impact on the world, whatever place you're in, you'll change it in this big transformational way. But I think legacy is much more intimate. It's it's your everyday little moments, the the footprint that you leave in in the sand each step you take. So I'm, I'm going to go one little segue and then I'll come back. I'm I'm a segue talker. Um, we know through environmental psychology that when people were bombarded with this, how terrible the world is and what's going on with pollution, it actually reduced motivational behaviour. They weren't able to act to make a difference to pollution because the scaremongering, look how bad everything is, if you don't do something, you're all going to drown in rubbish, doesn't seem to motivate behaviour. So what they did is it shifted the education to footprints that in your own household... What's the footprint that you can make in the – What? how are you reducing waste? And everybody's little footprint makes a huge difference. Mm. And so a standout life for me is that footprint, you know, the legacy that you leave in your everyday interactions. It's how I treat the checkout person. Do I look them in the eye and say, how are you? How was your day? And deeply listen? Or do I look down and just – put things in my bag and say, yep, good, thanks, and don't say anything? Or do I stop and notice something that's going on for me? Or do I stop and notice something that's going on for my husband, for my children, for my client? Uh, So that's a standout life for me, the intimate way in which I engage in the workplace. I'm sign up for that. (laughs) Thank you, Mel. I've just uh, enjoyed our time. Thank you. It was really lovely talking to you today.